Good evening, brothers and sisters. I noticed that Brother Anthony said uh, an intriguing subject. I uh, wonder myself at the audacity of uh, having ever offered this as a Bible class paper, really. These, quite genuinely, are just some thoughts on Judas Iscariot. Uh, and what I'd like to do is to begin by telling you how those thoughts arose. Because they really came about as the result of thinking about another of the disciples. Would you turn with me please to John's Gospel in chapter 13. John chapter 13, where we're with the Lord and the disciples at the Last Supper, it's the occasion, you remember, of the washing of the disciples' feet by our Lord. And at verse 23, we learn, Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That expression has always concerned me a little because I've never been able to find anyone who would agree with me that that isn't saying that Jesus especially loved John. I've never felt that it could be saying that. I may be wrong. I shall be glad to hear your opinions afterwards. But I, I never feel comfortable with the idea that Jesus had a favorite disciple or a special disciple above the rest. Um, and even if I were comfortable with that idea, I would be even less comfortable with the fact that John keeps telling us so about himself. There's no doubt that this is John. The last chapter of this gospel says, this is the disciple that testifieth of these things. So there's no doubt to whom this verse refers. I suppose it will be possible to read verse 23 here as meaning that Jesus loved all his disciples, but that clearly isn't the intention because this expression comes five times within the scope of John's Gospel. This is the first of the five. Now we should notice the context in which it comes. Verse 1 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Revised version, he loved them unto the uttermost. And that goes for all his disciples, brothers and sisters. Jesus loved them to the uttermost, to an extent that we can scarcely comprehend. The Lord's love was not restrained or restricted in any way. His heart went out to his disciples in their real and spiritual needs, and he truly loved them, every one of them. And this, of course, is now the last day before the crucifixion. So that's when this expression in verse 23 first comes to the fore. John describes himself as the, Jesus, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved one day before the crucifixion. In other words, right at the end of the ministry of our Lord. And then, once more in chapter 19 and three times after the resurrection. Let's just have a look at a couple more. Chapter 19 and verse 26. Here it's much more emphatic. John 19 and verse 26. Our Lord now has been crucified and he is, his concern is for his mother. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. <coughs> now, that itself is uh, an interesting Bible class subject uh, which we haven't time to go into. All we want to notice is that here it's emphatic. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple standing by whom Jesus loved. The one. Come over to chapter 21 and verse 7. <coughs> and notice how in this case, 
John need never have said this at all. Here, the phrase is even more incidental than it has been in the other places. John 21 and verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. This is the occasion when seven disciples went fishing after the resurrection, seemingly not knowing what else to do. And uh, Jesus appeared on the shore, and uh, John turns to Peter and says, It is the Lord. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's, that phrase need not be there at all, need it? But John again has put it there. Now it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that the only reasonable explanation of that, unless we are to believe that John was very proud of his special relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and used every opportunity to let everybody know about his special relationship, and that seems to me uh, pride of a kind that we would not expect nor find from the pen of the apostle. Unless we're going to look at John in that way, then it seems to me that perhaps the only real alternative is that what John is saying is that he saw himself as the disciple who was saved by that love. This is the disciple who was saved by the fact that Jesus loved him. This is the disciple who, you remember, was with his brother James, one of the sons of thunder. And perhaps because of that, John is acutely aware of his, his temperament, his past character, the way in which, as a son of thunder, he was so aggressive, perhaps on occasions belligerent, that without that love of the Lord shown to him, that Jesus showed to all his disciples, but without John's experience of it, he would have been lost. And by this expression then, it seems perhaps that John is telling us that it was that love of the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone which turned him from one of the sons of thunder to the beloved disciple the one who wrote so powerfully as his letters are and his first letter especially near the end of our New Testament so full of love and of that gentleness which we remember John 4 which for us characterizes that apostle doesn't it so he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is the disciple saying to us that unless Jesus had bestowed that love upon him, he would have been lost. It wasn't that he was more loved than the others. It was just that he is more conscious of his need of that love. He was more aware of the fact that without that love, he would not have been a disciple. Now you might wonder what that's got to do with Judas Iscariot and whether or not this is just padding for the address. Well, I assure you it's not and, and we'll, we'll come back to that thought a, a little later. Let's then turn our thought to Judas Iscariot. And thinking about Judas Iscariot, brothers and sisters, I, I felt, having thought about John in that way, that perhaps I had a, um, a warped view of Judas Iscariot. When one thinks of a thief or a traitor, um, at least in my own mind, there is a certain amount of stereotyping, I think. I hope I'm not alone in, in thinking of thieves as people often with sort of balaclava helmets, don't they? And, um, the, a thief is somebody who's a nasty piece of work, it seems to me. Uh, not the sort of person that you would want to be friends with. And similarly, a traitor. A traitor is, is someone guilty of treachery, not the sort of person you would, you would choose as one of your friends. And yet Judas Iscariot was chosen. He was chosen by God. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ as one of that band of twelve when our Lord had spent all night in prayer to God about the choice of his disciples. Now, that again is a fascinating subject that could take up a lot of time this evening and we mustn't let it. But again, I'd be interested to have your thoughts. How do you think Jesus chose the twelve? I don't know whether you've ever thought about that. Did Jesus go with a short list of, say, 50 names? 
to the Father and pray about 50 names and, and then say, well, no, not that one, we'll cross that one out. Yes, we put a tick by that one. Um, is that how it was done? Or did Jesus go to the Father in prayer and just alight on 12 names, the 12, without considering or without having to consider any others? I, I have no idea how the Lord chose the 12. I'd be very interested to know whether you thought about that and how you think it, it might have happened. However it happened, it was God's choice. The Lord Jesus Christ committed in some way these, these decisions to his Father. And when the morning was come, he chose twelve from amongst the many followers, the many disciples about him at that stage of the ministry. But he did not choose a villain, brothers and sisters. He did not choose a villain. It was not in the purpose of God to say to his son, well, you must have a villain amongst those twelve. There's got to be someone who's going to betray you. It didn't happen like that, did it? I don't think any of us imagine that it happened like that. Of course there had to be a traitor there. But he was not, there was not one bad disciple chosen of the twelve. There weren't eleven good ones and one bad one. Was that? It wasn't like that. There were twelve good disciples, twelve faithful followers of the Lord at that stage in his ministry, one of whom went wrong, one of whom turned bad. Of that there's no doubt. I'm not suggesting that, that Judas was not a wicked man. At the end he certainly was. But when he was chosen, he was not a villain then. He was not a thief. He was not a traitor. He was a, a faithful follower of the Lord at that stage. So we should bear that in mind, I think. Judas was not a nasty piece of work. He was not the, the sort of, of man that I would stereotype and, and characterize as a thief. Now, Judas does, of course, appear last in all the lists of the apostles. There are four lists. Um, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us each a list. And then there's a list in Acts 1 in which Judas Iscariot's name is not found, of course. Judas Iscariot was not there by Acts chapter 1. So he, he comes into three of the lists, and in all of them he's named last, and in all of them it's pointed out that he is the one who betrayed Jesus. Not that that was known at that time, but with hindsight the uh, Gospel writers record that information. Let's just turn to one of them by way of example, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse verse 4 perhaps we should go back to the beginning of the list verse 2 now the names of the twelve apostles are these the first Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother James the son of Zebedee and John his brother Philip and Bartholomew Thomas and Matthew the publican James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius whose surname was Thaddeus Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him and that's the same as we said in Mark and Luke as well Judas Iscariot which betrayed him Judas always comes last as being the one who was to be replaced whose name would be expunged from that list and replaced by that of Matthias. Again, we could stop to consider just that list, some intriguing things about that list, but uh, we haven't time to, to think about the way in which the apostles are listed this evening. We know very little else about Judas Iscariot, apparently. Certainly from the Gospels, we learn very little else about him. It's generally thought that Iscariot is a term which may mean that he came from Kerioth, and it's fairly widely accepted that Judas was probably the only Judean in the band of twelve, that the rest were Galileans. If that is the case, if that is right, and it seems certainly possible, maybe probable, then Judas may have felt the odd one out, perhaps. But there were other reasons why others 
could have been the odd ones out as well. So I don't think we should see Judas necessarily as feeling the odd one out in the group. Matthew, for example, might have had good reasons for feeling uh, that he was the odd one, and perhaps others. Uh, Simon, the zealot, uh, again, for reasons of his own, might have claimed the same thing. So I don't think that we should feel sorry for Judas Iscariot as necessarily being very different from, from the others. Certainly he wasn't a fisherman. Um, he may have been quite an intelligent man. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, he may have been more intelligent than a large number of the other disciples. Matthew, presumably, was um, an intellectual. He was uh, an accountant or a, a finance brother or whatever, wasn't he? A tax collector was Matthew. So he could certainly add up without a calculator. And uh, Judas Iscariot was presumably the same because he kept the bag. Let's turn to the record of that in uh, John chapter um, 12. This is um, almost all we know about Judas Iscariot from the Gospels. Uh, he does, his name does appear in John chapter 6 where again uh, Jesus says that um, after Peter's great confession thou art the Christ, the son of the living God Jesus says have not I chosen you twelve and one of you hath a devil and John adds that he spoke of Judas Iscariot which should betray him doesn't actually say that Jesus was aware at that stage that Judas Iscariot would be the traitor and despite what we've looked at in Matthew 10 and what I'm just reporting on John 6 we don't know at what stage Jesus knew who the traitor was he certainly knew by John 13 and the Last Supper but we don't know at what stage Jesus became aware that Judas was the one here in John chapter 12 is the incident of the anointing of Jesus with that uh, precious ointment of spikenard. Now again, many have drawn um, fairly wild conclusions, it seems to me, about Judas Iscariot. They may be right, but they may not. If John chapter 12 is the same as the incident in Luke chapter 7, and the two Marys are the same, then it may be that Simon the Pharisee is also Simon the leper. And that Simon was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Judas Iscariot. Some have suggested that Judas Iscariot was a brother of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the son of Simon the Pharisee. Now, that seems to me not to be well supported. It is a possibility. I haven't chosen to go down that road myself. I simply set it before you as a possibility and no more than that. Judas Iscariot may have been related to that little family at Bethany, but equally he may not. That seems to me to be largely speculation. But certainly he is in a position in John 12 to speak his mind about Mary's action and he does so without uh, any reserve. Verse 4 Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Now just notice that Jesus had given Judas the bag. Jesus had made Judas Iscariot responsible for their funds, presumably their very limited funds. And Judas was a thief. Judas often had his hand in the bag, apparently. And when it says he bare what was put therein, that might mean that he carried the bag, that he had that responsibility. He was the treasurer of the group. But the revised version says, and he bare away. And the word can certainly mean that. In fact, it's exactly the same word in the Greek 
as we meet in John 20 and verse 15. You needn't turn it up. It's where Mary Magdalene says to the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking him to be the gardener, if thou hast taken him away, tell me where thou hast laid him. If thou hast taken him away, if thou hast borne him hence, I think she says. So, this verse may well be saying, Judas had the bag and bare away, took away from time to time, what was therein. He uh, salted it away and put it in his own account, a Swiss bank or whatever the equivalent was. And uh, that's what Judas was up to. That's how he came to have the field, no doubt, of which we read in Acts chapter 1 because he'd been putting money aside on a regular basis. Whenever there was uh, something in the bag, Judas would make it something less than it should have been. And uh, repeatedly and regularly took away certain amounts. That seems to be the idea behind John 12. Not necessarily so, it might just be that he carried the bag, but the very fact that it says he was a thief suggests that that is the meaning of the word here. So we learn something about Judas Iscariot from this verse, something that uh, I'm sure we all knew, that he was the treasurer, that he was dishonest. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I've got nothing against fishermen when I suggest that Judas Iscariot might have been more intelligent uh, than, than some of the rest of the, of the group of disciples. And I have nothing against um, accountants and, and treasurers except dishonest ones. And there's no doubt that Judas was a dishonest one. That what weighed heaviest with Judas was self-interest. And apart from that, this record tells us he didn't care for the poor either. Although he made a great show and pretense about selling this ointment and giving the money to the poor, he had an ulterior motive in that, John is telling us. And it wasn't that he cared for the poor. So he did not care for the poor. And that really is all that we know about Judas Iscariot from the Gospels. That really is, more or less, all the information that can be gleaned about him. But what we do have, brothers and sisters, is an archetype of Judas Iscariot in the Old Testament, in the person of Ahithophel, the friend of David. So can we turn back now to the Psalms and just glean a little bit more information about Judas Iscariot from there? <clears throat> Psalm 109 but just before we look at that psalm let me just mention the relationship between Ahithophel and David for a long time and we do not know exactly how long but for many years Ahithophel and David had been very close they had been like that they were the best of friends Ahithophel was a very wise and a very godly man. The record says that the counsel of Ahithophel all his days had been as though a man asked at the oracle of God. Ahithophel was a very wise and a very astute man, but more than that, a godly wise man. He was astute in the things of God. He had a good grasp of the word of God. And that's why he and David would be such friends, surely. David would not have been friends with a man who was ungodly, would he? But, as you know, Ahithophel turned the traitor. And when Absalom rebelled against his father, Ahithophel joined Absalom's rebellion. Now, we do not know the reasons for that. Scripture doesn't tell us. It has been speculated that it was because of David's adultery with Bathsheba to whom Ahithophel was related. Ahithophel was, I think, Bathsheba's grandfather. I do not fully understand the reasoning behind that. I fail to understand fully why Ahithophel would be angry about that. Um, if his granddaughter had become um, the king's wife, then I would have thought that that uh, rise in status for her would only have, been, uh, would only have brought good and, and, and benefits to the family, 
and that that would not be something Ahithophel would be particularly aggrieved about. I may be wrong in that, but I, I fail to see quite the relevance of David's adultery with Bathsheba being a cause of Ahithophel, Ahithophel's treachery against David. It seems to me perhaps more likely that really because Ahithophel was such a godly man, he, he never really got over the fact that David, his, his close friend, had sinned. Perhaps he, he couldn't understand how David could do such a thing and couldn't come to terms with David's sin itself, regardless of the relationship between himself and Bathsheba. And perhaps Ahithophel was not a very forgiving individual, that although God forgave David, Ahithophel could not find it in his heart to do so. That's certainly not impossible, but again, it's speculation. It may be, brothers and sisters, that Ahithophel was somewhat disgraced by the fact that David went so public about his sin. And that's the wonderful thing about David. I think that's why God loved David. That although David hid his sin for some time, tried to pretend that there was no problem, eventually when David confronted his sin, or when God made David confront his sin, and David confessed it, David then made the thing public. He threw it open so that the whole nation knew that what he had done, he recognized was wrong, and he was sorry for it. It wasn't the first the nation knew about it. The nation knew well before that. Even Uriah the Hittite knew what had gone on, brothers and sisters. That's pretty plain when you read between the lines. Everybody knew. Everyone was whispering about it. But David, instead of doing what, unfortunately, so often we do in our ecclesias, sweeping it under the carpet, trying to spare people's blushes, David came out into the open about it, and he, he said what he'd done. He acknowledged his sin, and he said, I've made an error, a grave error of judgment. I've made a mistake, I've sinned, but I'm sorry about it. Don't follow my example. I will teach you the right way. I want you to do what's right. That's what was so pleasing in the eyes of God. And I wish with all my heart, brothers and sisters, that we did more of that in our ecclesial situations. That we didn't spend so much time trying to spare people's embarrassment, but brought things out into the open, dealt with them fully and properly, and then put away the matter once and for all. But it may be that David's going public like that brought his close friends under some disgrace. Perhaps Ahithophel felt badly because as a friend of David, maybe people thought that he had known. Perhaps he did and should have said something himself. Perhaps in some way it blackened Ahithophel's name. I don't know. I'm only groping for reasons why Ahithophel might have turned traitor. And frankly, we really do not know. But what we do know is that when Absalom rebelled against his father, took advantage of his father's dire distress and sickness, because David was in very, very poor shape at that time, when Absalom wickedly took advantage of his father in that way, Ahithophel saw an opportunity for self-interest. That's really what it was. David now was a lost cause, as far as Ahithophel was concerned. And he gladly and willingly threw in his lot with Absalom, and as the result, lost his life. It was Ahithophel's ambition, it seems to me, at that stage, his self-interest, and his believing that David was a lost cause, that led him to change sides in that way. And as you know, Ahithophel felt the need to hang himself. He could see no way back from the road to which he had so thoroughly committed himself other than the taking of his own life. Well, here in Psalm 109, we learn a little bit about Ahithophel, but we learn, incidentally, about Judas Iscariot too, because these words are of no avail unless they apply to Judas Iscariot, brothers and sisters. Psalm 109, you will recall, because uh, we read a part of it together, Brother Anthony read a part of Acts chapter 1, Psalm 109 was quoted there by Peter. 
Peter was telling us that this had an application to Judas Iscariot. That's what he said. In fact, what Peter said was rather lovely, wasn't it? Peter said, look, we've got a problem. We are twelve disciples destined to sit on the twelve thrones of Israel, twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and we're one short. What are we going to do? Well, Scripture tells us what to do. Scripture says, let his bishopric another take. So, we have to appoint somebody else. That's a, a lovely reaction, isn't it? A tremendous example for us, brothers and sisters. We have a problem. What does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible says we have to appoint somebody else, so let's get on with it. That's what Peter is saying there in Acts chapter 1. Psalm 109 says, let another take his office. So, what are we waiting for? Let's find the other who is to be witness with us of everything that Jesus did and said from his baptism to his resurrection and ascension. So Psalm 109 and verse 8. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also, out of their desolate places. So that tells us at least that Judas was a married man. There would be no point in these verses were that not the case, brothers and sisters. This isn't, well, it was true of the Hithophel and it might have been true of Judas Iscariot. This is quite certainly written prophetically about Judas Iscariot, just as the Messianic Psalms are prophetic of our Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering far more than they are of David's experiences. This is more about Judas Iscariot than it is about Ahithophel. So Judas Iscariot was quite definitely a married man with children. And the wife was left a widow. And the children became orphans when Judas Iscariot, like Ahithophel, took his own life. So we know that much about Judas Iscariot. Like Peter, he was married with a family. Now come back to Psalm 55, please. Psalm 55 is also a psalm that belongs to that same period and is also about David's friend Ahithophel. And uh, we want just to look at some verses here. Verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. Now that again, brothers and sisters, is telling us something about Judas Iscariot. And what he's telling us is that the relationship between our Lord and Judas Iscariot was very close. See, as we said earlier, Judas was not a villain. He wasn't a nasty piece of work. Jesus would not have been able to get close to a man like that, would he? In fact, it seems to me, from these verses here, that Judas Iscariot may well have been, and I merely make this as a suggestion, I shall not be dogmatic about it, but it does seem to me, on reflecting on it carefully and, and for some considerable time, that Judas Iscariot may well have been the most spiritual of all the twelve disciples. Just think about that. As far as his understanding and his grasp of scripture was concerned, his, his knowledge of the Old Testament, he may have been way ahead of the other disciples. Because it's saying that he was not an enemy of Jesus. He didn't, there was no hatred there at all. They, they weren't separated by, by that sort of thing. They were good friends. It was thou, a man mine equal. The word means of, of equal rank. Now, I'm not suggesting that Judas Iscariot's thought processes or his understanding and grasp of scripture was equal to that of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
because our Lord was in direct communication with the Father who opened his ear morning by morning and, and spoke to him. And of course, Jesus' mind was streets ahead of any other man's because it was not sullied by years and years of, of wickedness. He wasn't subject to the same sins that prejudice our thinking, brothers and sisters. He shared our human nature. He had the same propensity to sin. But his judgment was not marred by that which colors ours. But even so, it does say he was a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. There are two words there. The one of them means a friend, a chieftain, a governor, sometimes, an important person. That may suggest that Judas was the most important of the apostolic band at that time, perhaps because he was the treasurer. Perhaps that's why Jesus had given him that job. The other word means, well, it's the word to know. It's just the word to know. And it's telling us that Jesus knew Judas. He knew him intimately. He knew him like you know your best friend. Like you, you know your wife or your husband or you know your children. You know how they will react in certain circumstances. Now Jesus knew that about most men. But especially we're told he knew it here about Judas. And that's the word that Acts 1 used again, isn't it? Acts 1 made reference to this passage. Acts 1 was telling us, quite plainly, that this passage is about Judas Iscariot. We're not applying something to him that might apply, brothers and sisters. Peter said in Acts 1 and verse 16 of Judas that he was guide to them that took Jesus. So Peter was using the word from Psalm 55. And Psalm 55 is telling us quite clearly that Judas was a man whom Jesus relied on. He was his friend. And they took sweet counsel together. I think the Hebrew is that he sweetened counsel. They walked together in the house of God. So when the, Jesus and the disciples went into the temple, brothers and sisters, it was Judas who was at the side of Jesus. It was Judas who could sometimes grasp the spiritual lessons that Jesus was teaching when some of the other disciples seemed so obtuse and unable to understand anything he said. It was Judas with whom Jesus took sweet counsel, with whom he shared some things that apparently he wasn't always able to share with the others. Now that's a Judas Iscariot that I had not thought about before, that I had, I had not got room for in my mind. And these thoughts about Judas Iscariot have made me alter my view of Judas to some degree. And it seems to me that that's what these verses are telling us about him. Psalm 41 is the other psalm that mentions Judas, and we'll just look at, at two verses there. <coughs> Psalm 41 again has quite a bit to say about Ahithophel <coughs> and therefore prophetically about Judas Iscariot just notice verse 1 blessed is he that considereth the poor haha yes you remember John 12 Judas Iscariot cared not for the poor John told us the incident of the anointing of Jesus why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and the money given to the poor? Not that he cared for the poor. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. So you can see, can't you, that Psalm 41 is quite definitely about Judas Iscariot again. And verse 9 is the verse that we know well, isn't it? Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. There's a, an element of... of Astonishment of unbelief, isn't there? Of incredulity in this verse. It's, it's, it's you. It's my own familiar friend. It's the one I trusted more than all the others, David seems to be saying, doesn't he? And Jesus is saying that too, brothers and sisters. It's the one with whom he'd taken the sweetest counsel. It was the one who, who mentally, 
in terms of spiritual understanding perhaps may have been head and shoulders above the rest of the disciples it, it was that one that was what was so hard so difficult so, so grieving to David and to great David's greater son that it turned out to be Judas of all of them it was him which did eat of my bread can we come back then to the gospel of John in chapter 13 because it's there that Judas eats of Jesus bread as it were the sop <coughs> that Jesus gives him John chapter 13 and verse 23 He then lying, sorry, verse 23. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. There's that expression that we mentioned earlier. Simon Peter therefore beckoning to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. And verse 30 tells us, He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Now the point here, brothers and sisters, that John is making, is that Jesus gave to Judas Iscariot the favour of the sop. This was a privilege to receive from the host's hand this token of love and of fellowship. Now by this time Jesus was certainly aware that it was Judas Iscariot who would betray him. And he has already washed the disciples' feet. He has already lavishly and lovingly shown Judas Iscariot the same affection and care in gently washing his feet same care that he has bestowed upon all the disciples and all their feet and now he takes the sop and dips it into the Haraseth and hands it to Judas the sign of, of favour of affection, of love mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted and the point of verse 30, and I know I've made this point here in Durban before, but maybe some of you weren't present and I'll make it again. The point of verse 30 is that John is saying that even despite this, Judas still betrayed him. Here is John's incredulity now, picking up David's incredulity from Psalm 41. John says, and Judas, having received the sop, still went immediately out. He should never have accepted it. He should never have taken that token of esteem and affection and, uh, and love and, and friendship. And he did. He took it. And still he went immediately out on his wicked errand to betray the Lord. To gather a band of soldiers and go back to arrest Jesus. So that's the import of verse 30 there and the fulfilment of the psalm. Many have speculated as to why Judas did it, whether he was disillusioned with the Lord Jesus Christ. I would much prefer myself to try and carry through the reasons we suggested in connection with Ahithophel and David. If the type holds good, brothers and sisters, it seems to me likely that the reasons for Judas Iscariot's disaffection with Jesus must at least be similar to those of Ahithophel with Jesus. Perhaps in some way Judas Iscariot felt disgraced by his friendship with Jesus, as Jesus lost popularity. We can't be certain about that. But we do know that Judas's concern again was self-interest. A bargain was struck. The 30 pieces of silver was probably only the down payment 
In any case, it was given back. But it was self-interest that motivated him. The prospect of bettering himself. Matthew 27 tells us how he went back to the Pharisees and returned the money, throwing it down in the temple. But you notice that exactly like Ahithophel, he did not see any way back for himself from the road to which he had committed himself. And he had no faith in the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to be the thing we notice most about Judas, isn't it? That he had no faith. Psalm 55, part of which we sang in hymn 31, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee, was not something that Judas recognized. Come finally then to Acts chapter 1, please. Because it's this element of self-interest particularly that Peter picks up here. We've mentioned already Peter's absolutely right reaction to the fact that now there are only 11 apostles where there had been 12 disciples. And in speaking of Judas, Peter says this, Acts 1 and verse 18. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, I'm not concerned here and now to, to uh, try and um, piece together exactly what happened. I believe that the records can be fairly readily reconciled uh, in, in maybe more than one way. I'm not concerned with that tonight, brothers and sisters. These are just thoughts on Judas himself. What I want us to notice is that Peter is using an expression here with two words which he uses again later when he says this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity Peter uses exactly that expression again the same two words translated differently in our King James authorised version 2 Peter 2 and verse 15 you needn't Peter is talking about Balaam. So Peter seems to see some kind of parallel between Judas Iscariot and Balaam. Because of Balaam, he says, or of others who have turned away from the truth, he says, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness or the reward of iniquity. Same two words exactly. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Peter had already used those words of Judas Iscariot. The reward of iniquity. The wages of unrighteousness. That's what Judas loved. Self-interest playing the greatest part. And verse 25 of Acts chapter 1 contains, interestingly enough, another reference it would seem to Balaam. When Peter says of Judas, Acts 1.25, Let's choose one, he says, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Now that's an expression concerning Balaam straight out of the Septuagint version of Numbers 24-25. That's what it says of Balaam. At the end of the story of Balaam, it says that Balaam returned to his own place. Numbers 24 and verse 25 in the Septuagint. So again, Peter seems to be drawing a parallel and reminding us of the self-interest that figured most prominently in Judas Iscariot's thinking. So putting those things together, brothers and sisters, those are really just a few thoughts on Judas Iscariot. 
their thoughts which changed my view of him to such an extent that I, I thought it was worth floating the ideas and seeing if anyone would agree. Perhaps you don't. Perhaps you violently disagree. But there is a practical exhortation that arises from these few thoughts, isn't it? And it is simply this, that to be a traitor you don't need to be a villain. You could be intelligent. You could academically be very clever. You could be steeped in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that you can't be tempted by self-interest. I find that a sober warning personally. That the temptation to self-interest can be just as strong amongst those who love the scripture, who love talking about the word of God as it can amongst those who have grown up as thieves who have always been villains or a nasty piece of work and at the end of the day brothers and sisters the fact that Judas walked into the temple of God with Christ that he spent three and a half years with the master talking scripture taking sweet counsel with him his familiar friend, perhaps the closest to Jesus of all the twelve, on the same wavelength almost. He still had no faith in Jesus' power to, give, to forgive his sins. And I find that even more sobering, brothers and sisters. How well do you know the Son of God? How intimately do you know his teaching? Keep company with him through the word. And how much do you really believe that our Lord Jesus can and does take away our sin? That there is a way back, however far we have wandered. There is forgiveness with him that our God may be feared. And there is the hope by his grace of everlasting life.